I don't know. My top lip feels weird. Uh, you should probably get that checked out. Oh, I, I like. I had a spoonful of peanut butter. Mm-hmm. And then I like kept the spoon in my mouth when the peanut butter was gone. Mm-hmm. And I think I think sucking on that spoon made 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 my top lip weird. You've got aluminum toxicity. Oh, good. Is that a thing from just like twenty minutes of spoon? Yeah, no, that is the number one leading cause of aluminum toxicity is 20 minutes of spoon. Oh, okay, good. Good good to know. All right, that, we'll talk about it. You lose your lips. I can't whistle right now. Lost lips sink ships. I can't whistle at all right now. You lost the ability to whistle. No! And this is Zero Credits, the show where we talk about things. My name's Henry. And my name is John. And together we're Henry and John, back for the 48th or so time. Yeah, that's uh, that's 48 straight weeks, kind of, of podcasts. Yeah, 48 straight weeks if you do not count all of the gaps and hiatuses that happened in between some of those weeks. Also, the... Do we do we count if we have like a supplemental reading? Is that counted? I I no, they're not numbered in any way. So <laughs> this is the forty eighth episode of Zero Credits. We've done more episodes of if you if you include supplemental readings and lesson zeros. This is the forty eighth canonical episode of Zero Credits. Yes, everything else is non canon. It has entered henceforth into the canon. The head canon. Cannon fodder. Cannon daughter. It's a real, uh, it's a real low energy day here at the ranch. Uh, and that ranch is, of course, what John is talking about is just him. Yeah, no, at the, the John Ranch. Yeah, I had, I, I'm full of energy. I had a spoonful of peanut butter before we started. That has the most energy per calorie. I mean, that's why I did it. I should have done that. Am I wrong in thinking that peanut butter is a decent source of protein? No, it's a decent source of protein. Okay, good, good. It's a pretty high calorie, but who cares? Well, I mean, if you need protein, you probably spend a lot of calories anyway. I just want to slam protein all day. Mmm. Wait, is that like slamming it against the table or something? Yeah, uh, whenever... Whenever I'm at a restaurant and I think the food should be coming out faster, I just start slamming protein on the table and going, Bilbo Baggins. The protagonist of The Hobbit? What's that song from The Hobbit where they're banging things on a table and singing at Bilbo? Oh, I don't know because they sang so well I don't remember. I don't remember anything about The Hobbit movies. You're thinking of the the Leonard Nimoy song, Bilbo Baggins. Oh, you know, you're right. <laughs> How did that one go again? Uh, Bilbo Baggins. I'm Leonard Nimoy. So I don't know. Oh, yeah. Bilbo Baggins, King of the Wild Frontier. You you nailed it right on the small hobbit head. Uh, what's your experience with The Hobbit? Uh, I have seen the Peter Jackson movies. I started reading the book in middle school, but never finished. I think a lot of people relate to that, uh, especially with, like, Lord of the Rings and stuff. Yeah. I uh, I enjoy the Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit as books as a child, so seeing them turn into things over the course of my life has been cool and disappointing in almost equal measure. Yeah, those Hobbit movies are really, really hard to get through. I don't know why or how you can mess that up so terribly. I mean, we've talked about this on the podcast, but I've only seen the third one. Ah, I've, well, see the first one and then you're done. You're done. Because that's uh, got Martin Freeman in it, right? Yeah, Martin Freeman, it plays the titular Hobbit. Oh, is that what titular means? Oh, like titular. Yeah, like like tidy tidy Euler. 
Is that what the French call a Recon Centra? No, that's a Nissan Centra. <laughs> no, I don't think the French have a word for a Nissan Centra. There's a, there's a joke there that I was trying to make, but it died on the vine. Just like all of the grapes from the past 15 years. Like the Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, that's what I was referring to. Oh. Salinger's Masterpiece. Have you ever, uh, wait, wait a second. What's up? Wait a hot minute. I'm uh, not sure that J.D. Salinger wrote The Grapes of Wrath. Are Are you not sure? Is that, is that not, is that not true? I'm gonna say that I'm 80% sure that J.D. Salinger did not write The Grapes of Wrath. Well, who, who then? Who, who, who did then, John? Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman did not, no, just because he writes about leaves of grass does not mean he writes about grapes of wrath. Uh, who wrote Walden? That's Henry David Thoreau. That, it was that guy, he wrote it. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, right. Hey, who wants to read about a lake? No one. Walden is, is a shit book. Oh man, this sounds like, uh, the, the next in our long line of installments, uh, Fire the literary cannons? Uh, yeah. Oh, no. uh, Okay, are we not prepared for fire the literary cannons? We can. You trapped me into talking about Walden. Okay, so let's do a quick segment of fire the literary cannons. All right, all right. Uh, On the stipulation that uh, you have to lambast Walden. That's fine. I can do that literally all day. And you know what? We don't even have to replace anything in the canon. We just have to take down things that are in it. Well, let's let's do that. All right. So, uh, fire the literary canon. Essentially, uh, if you're new to the segment, we take apart things in the literary canon. Usually, replace it with other things. But that canon is stale. It's rote. Its wheels are falling off. It's a disgrace. I mean, who even uses cannons anymore? Don't we have like something better than cannons now? Yeah, replace it with a literary AK-47. I feel like that's a smaller gun. Than a cannon? Yeah. I mean, it's accurate. What about, like, a rail gun? The literal gun. <laughs> the literal gun. Yeah, fire the literal gun. Anyway, tear apart Walden. You see, the problem with Walden is, look, I don't know if you've read it. Have you read it? I've not. I've read parts of it, and it's boring. The thing about Walden is, the whole premise of Walden is that this guy, Henry David Thoreau, is like, we should all go back to nature, go live in nature, leave the city, and just provide, live off the land, provide for oneself, and just get away from it all, and that's, that's where, that's where philosophy, philosophical thought can happen, is in nature, away from everyone else. Hmm. So that's the premise of what he calls his experiment, where he tries to live a year by Walden Pond. Now, here's the thing. Part of what, part of the first part of the book is him setting up the cottage. And, uh, that this includes going frequent trips back to civilization for food and supplies. So he's not at all doing what he's saying. It, the premise of it is. Yeah, that does not seem like a very successful experiment. And then when he gets set up finally, all he really writes about is how boring it is to live in nature. But it's it's basically, he gets so caught up, he's so far up his own persona that he just misses things. The only cool things in that book are when he writes about the whooping crane and the battle of the two different types of ants. Uh, both of those sound amazing. And they're the most exciting parts of the book as well. Now, uh, do you think that Henry David Thoreau is the first, the first documented case of a literary glamper? Uh, I, maybe, you know, because a big part of his living in nature is that he was independently wealthy already. So, like, mm-hmm. he did, he literally didn't have to do any work to fund anything that he was setting up. So, it's just kind of like, yeah, he glamped, basically, because he lived in a cottage, he was out in the wilderness, quote, quote, or whatever. But he was really just living it up and having a nice little vacation away from the society that had just let him out of debtor's prison, by the way. Nice. I hope one day to be released from debtor's prison. I think I think if we still had debtor's prison, uh, you know, everyone would be there. 
Yeah, I think that's why we don't have it anymore, because people realize that they liked having people in debt. Yeah. It also doesn't make any sense, I don't... Because if you fall into debt, you, you can't throw someone in prison and have them magically repay the debt. They're not going to get money from anywhere. You know, I think uh, this Henry David Thoreau guy is uh, also... That, that book sounds pretty thorough about nature. Oh my god, John. John, just just know. So this Henry David Thoreau guy, uh, it sounds pretty, um, like a pretty great example of something that I've been thinking about a lot today. I've been thinking about, uh, you know, erudition and, you know, living life as one sees fit and kind of an academic lifestyle, like this, this classic interpretation of, like, people who live for a cause of education. And... I kind of think that the only people who can do that are people who were independently wealthy before. Yeah. And it upsets me because I very much would like to live a lifestyle like that to some degree. I, there's there's some writer who said, like, to be a good writer, all you need is, like, a private room and $1 million. Nice. Because... I I, th I agree that a lot of these people who seem like they live a certain lifestyle that is appealing just so happen to also be independently wealthy. And that's the uh, that's the thing about it is that to have this kind of these these trying academic artistic lives, you have to be given so many breaks leading up to it. Yeah, you have to have so much privilege to live a life like that. It's it's almost untouchable by your average person, which is a huge bummer. Yeah, I mean, I was reading a, a question and answer uh, thing with uh, Bob Odenkirk. And uh, somebody asked him a question like, is 50 too late to kind of make it in, in the, the comedic world? And he was like, well, no, no, it's not. Uh, you know, if you're talking television in Hollywood, however, probably because that stuff takes years to build and mm. it's it's what you're describing all of those lucky breaks you know all the people you got to meet you know if you look at a, if you look at someone famous today they're a, a literal conglomeration of all those lucky breaks in action and that lets them li live a certain lifestyle that 99% of us will never know and uh, maybe the aspirational nature of human beings kind of leads us down the wrong path in wanting these kinds of lifestyles because you have to think sometimes uh let's let's just throw someone out there just a name of a person who lives a life kind of like that that you would want to be like um dan Harmon. okay so let's say you want to be dan Harmon. okay uh, you have to look at dan Harmon and be like for my life to be that way I need to uh, be independently successful. I need to catch a million lucky breaks. I need to have the right family members, the right friends, live in the right place, have the right connections. And then in addition to that, I have to be happy. Oh, but like, I don't know if a lot of people who live that lifestyle are happy. So should we want it? I'm not entirely sure, you know. Because, I mean, bills need to get paid. Yeah, you know, no matter who you are, I feel like it's it's our human nature to say, okay, they're not happy, but if I had everything that they had, I would find a way to be happy. Yeah, I'd make it work. Yeah, everyone kind of thinks that, but then the people who get to 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 live that route, I don't know. I I think reality sets in. I'm not sure anybody ends up happy. So, I mean, at some point, do we just have to accept that no matter who we are, what breaks we get, what lives we end up living, that there's a certain level of, like, baked-in unhappiness and these these aspirations we have to live lives that aren't our own? Because, like, if you take, I don't know, Dan Harmon, I'm sure he, in some ways, envies, like, a ditch digger. Probably. Or just someone with a simpler life? Is it always just going to be like, the way that we live is in a state of unease and a low-level unhappiness, and when we want to be these other people, it's just a form of escapism? It, it might have something to do with just survivability in general, because if you think back to when we hunt, hunted and gathered and stuff like that, if we were ever content 
if we weren't searching for more, we would stop. We would just stop doing things and we would die off. Mm. So I think there's a there's a level of we should always or not we we should always not not the should, but there's a level of always searching for more in us in our human nature that sort of keeps us moving forward because we're always going to be looking for these these momentary uh, lapses in the pain of existence. And if we look at other people who have lives that are completely different from ours, it's easy for us to imagine that these people are free from these, like, tiny, stinging pains of life. And and that has a lot to do with what we can observe, like, what we can know about another person just from looking at them. You know, we see somebody, like, in a Tesla or something, we see them in a nice car next to their, like, beautiful wife or whatever, and we can just think that because they look like they're better than maybe the situation that we're in, they must have it better. But what you can't see are all those inside stinging pains that might not make that life as good as we think it is. You know, they have the thing that I don't have, which means they must be doing something right. And if I had that thing, I'd be happy. So they must be as happy as that thing would make me all the time. Yeah, it's like a... Um, a window shopping fallacy or something like that. Or, like, even even an argument could be made that uh, there's some level of survivorship bias in looking at that. Like, we see the few successes people have made, and we hold those successes up as these successes must be indicative of the rest of their lives, but their lives are probably full of roughly the same amount of failures as our lives. Probably. And failures on different scales, like a person who is like a Dan Harmon who is like pitching shows to people, to networks, and, you know, they a failure in that person's life is much bigger than maybe a failure in somebody's life who it is just digging a ditch. And it's always the thing that people point to when they talk about people being happy and they're like, oh, I'm sure that they have a terrible family life and I'm not sure that's fair. But I, I think that it's something that's worth considering is everybody's got problems. So maybe the thing we should address is not like the the inequities in our own life, but the things like at the at the core of it, like we should we should treat the, the disease, not the symptoms and be like, should I just be happy being me or at least satisfied? I think. There is a degree of need to find contentness within your situation as far as if you have all of the basic necessities, you should count your blessings more so than look after the uh, the properties of other people. But that could all just be like a, a, a way to get people to be content with their meager, stupid little lives while the rich just keep getting richer. And, I mean, personally for me, I feel like, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, that I am in a position in my life where I could basically live on autopilot for the next 20 years, assuming nothing huge changes in my life, where I make enough money to pay rent, save a little bit, uh, and that's pretty much it. And I have to keep reminding myself, hey, you need to wake up, you need to strive for better things, you need to push yourself, you need to be scared and unhappy and sad about some stuff because things need to change. You need to make things better. So how do we, how do we choose to be content where we, how do we choose that to think that people who have things that we want aren't necessarily happier than we are, but we still need to strive for better things. That That's a, that's a damn good question. Um, I don't really have an answer. I, I think, I think being happy with what you have but still striving to better yourself can't it can coexist mm-hmm. you know you're not saying that you're it striving to do better is not saying that i want more things to be happy about or something like that it's like i'm content now but i know it's in within my reach that things could be better and it, i might not be happier but at least i'll have this other thing at least i can be proud of this work I put into to get this other thing. Does that make sense? It, it does. And, and maybe philosophically, uh, you know, going to what you said, like 
maybe it's a means versus an end kind of thing. You know, if we see a we see a Dan Harmon or a nice car, we're like, I want to to get that because it means something, but maybe the way you live your life is not I want those things so that that could be like the finish line because that's what I want. We should just look at those things like I would like to have a life that uh like affords me those things because I'm working towards something greater, something that's a little more like self-actualizing. Yeah, I mean, I think an important thing is to some people think of like jobs as like selling portions of your time for money. And that's that's a way to sort of think about it. But if you think about it that way, then your own time becomes that much more valuable. So when you're not working for your job, you should be working for yourself to either better yourself or make something or spend that time valuably, valuably, I don't know how to speak, spend that time in a way that makes you proud that you spent your time that way. And I mean, that's really all we can hope to do is we can we can have an end in mind, but maybe the end can't be something simple and the end can't be, I guess the end that we work towards can't be happiness. It just has to be something that isn't that. Yeah. I, I mean, if you talk to anyone who's ever sort of like worked on a novel or a book before, they'll tell you that the key to finishing your book is to write every day. And it's like you're not writing every day with the goal in mind that I'm going to get rich off this book. This book is going to literally change my life. You're just writing every day with the hopes that you're closer at the end of the day to finishing your book. And yeah, it's a, it's a means versus an end thing. And I guess that's all you got to do. I mean, I say all you got to do. It's not simple, but you have to, you have to live for your means, not for an end. And that end can't be just, Oh, I want to be happier by having things. Yeah. I mean, I, I think maybe what could help here is to sort of sit down and, and reflect on what will make you happy and then working towards that, but with the end goal in mind being just to complete the task, not for any consequences that come from the completion of that task. Yeah, be uh, be goal-oriented, not like finish line oriented and a, a part of it is you got to enjoy the process as well you know it, it, you can't hate the process and then when you finish it you won't magically like what you've done if you if you're not liking the process you won't like the end product odds are that's something that i struggle with because i find that in almost every case uh i'm very bad at enjoying a process like getting into a flow state and having this mindfulness where i'm like this is the thing that i'm doing and i'm enjoying doing it i do get very in my own head about finished products. Yeah, it's it's hard to just focus on the now and not try to think of what's going to come next, especially like like if you if if you're running or whatever and people talk about you enter like this weird trance state and enter the runner's high or whatever and you just keep going. I've never found that to be true. I think that's bullshit. I think that's what people say to runners to to non-runners to get them to run. Um but you got to defeat that somehow you know maybe that zen state is uh mindfulness and enjoying a process and that's just it's something that runners enjoy uh, it could be I, I i'm much happier enjoying listening to a podcast or something while i'm while i'm running to distract me from the fact that i am running but uh I, I, the zen like state never really comes because i can't shut off my think mouth and I mean, that's one thing that I run into sometimes because I really enjoy like lifting weights or working out. And when I talk to people who do not enjoy that and I see it like something to be like completed, that's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. It's like, no, it's something that you should have fun with because it's, it's this fun, privileged activity that you're doing. It's like you're in a playground, but... I think everyone feels that way about most processes, and you just have to find ones that you enjoy. Yep. I think life is just a its a bunch of compromising with doing something you don't want to do for long stretches of time, offset by doing something you want to do for slightly shorter periods of time, unless you land your dream job, you know? And maybe that's uh, one thing that we can think about is, you know, human brain can make new neural pathways, maybe it's possible to learn to enjoy something, learn to enter a, 
a flow zen state with any process. And people have gotten used to worse things, you know, so it, it probably is possible. And, I mean, we're we're teachable animals. We can teach ourselves things. Yeah, you can train a dog. You can train yourself. You know, that's something I was thinking about today, actually. Training a dog? No, but I was thinking of dogs because they're so cute and I want to touch their little noses. I mean, dogs are great. I love dogs. Um, I, I'm not one of those people who's, like, dog crazy, but every once in a while I see a dog that is so good, I'm like, I must have a dog. Yeah. I was uh, riding some rented bicycles with my significant other on a bicycle trail. (laughs) Trial. And, and by the way, these bikes were terrible. Well, they were rented bikes. They were awful. That's great. Anyway, um, we were just uh, cycling along, and then I just saw someone with two adorable little chunky black lab puppies. I'm like, we have to get a dog. Are you getting a dog? No. No. But we have to. Did you did you see those puppies? No, but you can imagine. I mean, every time I see a dog do something adorable, I think, well, that dog's mine now, so you have to give it to me because I love it. I have this very... Uh, disturbing and uh and maybe unfair definitely unfair mental process i go through when i see certain dogs where i see them do cute things and then they look at me with when they're with their owner and i'm like clearly he wants to live with me yeah i think the dog has made its decision by looking at me we've communicated and we voted you out and me and so skedaddle i know this is a hard time for you with your dog choosing for me to be its owner forever and for you to go pound sand, but we made an agreement. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the unspoken bond between a dog and a stranger is stronger than a dog and a master. I mean, come on. I mean, look at those eyes. Only you have to keep buying the food. Shit. Oh, yeah, yeah, like the original owner? Yeah. Yeah, the, the original owner has to buy the food. Yeah, buy the food and also take it out to poop. Yeah, and we'll just do the cuddling and the taking care of emotionally. And we'll teach it the easy tricks, but you teach it the tough ones. (laughs) That's how I feel about, like, dog training schools or obedience schools, where it's like, shouldn't a dog learn obedience from the person that they're going to live with? (laughs) You'd think so. I I mean, I don't know. I always wanted one of those dogs that understands sign language. I make it sound like this is a special kind of dog, but it's not. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can teach dogs, like, sign language for, like, ball and walk and food. What, what, why would you want a dog that can read sign language? Because it's cool. Okay, I mean, that is pretty cool. Do you know sign language? I could learn. That's, you're right, you are capable of learning. I'll just have a human teach it to me so I can teach it to a dog. I feel like that's a good flow of knowledge. It's, a. Uh... it's all about the information flow. Oh, also, uh, fuck song or Roland. Wait, what? That's uh, that's my literary canon entry. What's Song of Roland? Oh, the Song of Roland? Oh, the Song of Roland, okay. Yeah. What's that? It's a book. <laughs> okay. Never read it. You just, you're just, okay, you're just lambasting it in general. Yeah, no. I think there's uh, like a, a green knight who gets beheaded, I'm not sure. Um, That sounds like uh, Gowan and the Green Knight. Ah, oh, yeah, no, fuck that too. Get it out of here. But no, Gowan and the Green Knight's great. It's supernatural. The supernatural has no place in literature. I think the supernatural has every place in literature. Um, have you read any of the supernatural novels? Wait, like the novels for the TV show Supernatural? Yeah, the award-winning novelizations of the TV show Supernatural. No, John. No, 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 no. Have you never, uh, have you never? I've never. Uh, Not Even My Brother Sam is Dead. Is that a book? That is a book. It's an actual book, but it could also be a supernatural book. Oh, it's not, oh, come on. Now you're just messing with me. Uh, how about Dean, the great Dean, Deansby? I was trying to think of a Dean one too, but all I got was Dean Ambrose. Perfect. But he's an author. What about Deans of the St- Stone Age? Deans of the Stone Age? Yeah, Deans of the Stone Age. I don't think that's a book. Um, you're a book. 
No, I'm a human person. So yeah, uh, that was this most recent iteration of Fire the Literary Canon. Pa-pow, pa-pow! Hey, real quick sidebar, you can edit this out. Oh man, what a good private conversation we just had. I enjoy it. You know, I always like these moments that we sneak into the podcast where the listener has no idea that we just talked about all the secret things that they can't hear. Of course, if you uh, submit money to the Zero Credits Patreon, you will, of course, have the paywall lifted and be given access to the secret side podcast. Oh, man, yeah. I, honestly, like, the we've been doing that the secret side podcast for episodes. This is the first time we're bringing it up in the main podcast. Hmm. Uh, I mean, th- there was a, a string of clues in the past 47 episodes that hinted at the side podcast, but I- I'm glad that we're actually advertising it right now. Which is insane, because uh, that thing that I just said about the paywall being lifted, if you go back and you speed every episode of Zero Credits up by 1,600 times, uh, the low rumble you hear in the background is actually me saying that exact same sentence. Yep. It's just, it's him saying quite audibly, lift the paywall. Which, uh, it is 16,000 times, so that is all I got to say in 47 episodes. Yeah, you know, we thought he was going to be able to to say like a, a fuller sentence, but, uh, it turns out the uh, compression rates are a, a lot more compressy than we thought. And you might be looking at our Patreon and saying, you don't have a Patreon, and you might be looking at your beautiful house, and you're saying, this is not my beautiful house, and you might be saying, how much do I have to give you to lift the paywall? And the answer is, you gotta ask. Can't afford yeah. it. Yeah, if you gotta ask. I mean, that paywall, made out of diamonds, I've heard. I've never actually seen it, but uh, it it takes a lot to lift. From what I understand of the paywall, it is in the shape of a cobra. Yes, a diamond cobra paywall. So that... if you want to lift the diamond cobra paywall, cough it up. Yeah, just, you know, send money to us and we will talk to the guy who owns the diamond cobra paywall and see what we can work out. And uh, don't try to do any early game Final Fantasy VII stuff and kill the diamond cobra early. Yeah, why would you want to do that? That sounds like you would get a sweet reward or something for doing that. You know, I was thinking about going back and, oh my god, content. But what? I, could, I, what? Could go, I could go back and replay Final Fantasy VII on the Zero Credits Twitch page. Yeah, that would be cool. I've never actually played it. What? I've never played Final Fantasy VII. That would be so good. I, I mean, I know the major spoiler, but that's about all I know. It's a, I, I think it's a good game. And apparently there's a big cat that you always want in your party. Uh, you mean Kate Sith? Duh. Yeah, always, he's the best party member I've heard. But uh, enough with me spoiling all the good content on the Zero Credits Twitch.tv page. Once again, that's Twitch.tv slash Zero Credits where you can watch everything we've ever streamed up until this point. John, John, have we streamed anything up to this point? Nope. Good. Great. Maybe soon. Maybe soon. But uh, I think with that sweet, tantalizing tidbit, it might be time to take a little bit of a break. Let's take a little bit of a break. Little break. Little, little break. Little break. Little break. Little break. Limit break. That's from the Final Fantasy set break. Yeah, I, I got a haircut today, and I, I only did it because I had a coupon for literally half off of the price, not my hair. Oh, man, if I had a hair barber arena, that's not what it's called. <laughs> hair barber arena. If I had a if I had a, a Barbary a Barbary coast, I would absolutely put out half off coupons and then shave half of someone's head. Read the fine print, loser. That was a break, and we're back from it. Yeah, we had a great time on our break. I went to Walton Pond. And I sat in a chair. Uh you had a better experience than I did. Let me tell you about these ants though. 
Oh, the, these ants, though? Crazy. Crazy ants? Yeah, it was uh, it was a battle of the ants. Battle of the seven ant armies. The seven ant... Oh, man, you, you witnessed a legendary event. It only happens once every septemlium. Yeah, man, whenever there's a thousand septembers, ooh. <laughs> yeah, you know. Man, but, though, it really it really gets fucked up whenever there's a leap year, because as we all know, in leap years, there's no September. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, so it, it, it really is a long wait. It's a long wait. For, for the, the event. Yeah, it's a long wait to Tipperary. Speaking of long waits, mm. I got, I went to a haircut place today. Was there a long wait? Uh, no, there was no wait. Oh, also proud of you. Uh, I mean, I didn't get it really cut. I, I literally got half an inch trimmed off, like, just to make it look a little more neat and clean. Hey, anything's progress. But, uh, you know what I hate more than anything else and what actually makes me wish I might go bald one day? Oh. I hate haircuts, John. I wouldn't know. I, you've gotten your haircut before. Yeah, I've gotten my haircut before at a time long ago. Well, think back to it. <laughs> Not in a sitcom way. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, sorry, let me bring that back. Okay, we're back in the present. <laughs> think yeah, they, back. They, they sucked. Wait, what? They su- Yeah, yeah, think back to it. You know, it was always like you were probably a kid. And the haircut person was always, you know, stupid old. And they always wanted to talk. And it's just like, there could never be a more mismatched pair of people who are, for some reason, trying to have a conversation. A child and an old person who's cutting the child's hair off? Yes. Or like anyone. I don't... In my time, I never found that hairdressers were particularly enjoyable to talk to. Yeah, I, I mean, I said yes, but I, I pretty much just meant haircut victim and haircut executioner. And that's not to say that uh, hairdressers or barbers or scissormen are uninteresting people. It's just that's not what you're there for. Yeah, but I really think they could benefit from some rapport building and... You know, I, I actually, I actually tried this haircut because a lot of back back when I got my haircut more than like twice a year or even mm. more than once a year, I went to the same place over and over again and tried, you know, over a, a years of trying to to make a rapport, a connection with somebody. I literally gave up and just was silent for the entire twenty minutes or so. That's sad. It, it's and it it's hard to sit there and say nothing. And you're just staring at yourself, and your eyes start watering up, and you're like, I'm not crying because I'm getting my hair cut. That's not what's happening. I just, I don't know, what's, just shut up. It's just important to be very clear that you're not crying because you're getting your hair cut. Yeah. So I actually tried with this person today, and, you know, I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting my hair cut because I have an interview coming up, blah, blah, blah. And just, she, she, her response was like, Okay. Really? Yep. That was it? A little while later later into the haircut, uh, she was like, is that your Jeep outside? (laughs) And... Was it? No, I don't drive a Jeep. Mm. So, it's it's just like, what what a... She took a gamble on a conversation topic and lost... And now we're stuck in this weird vacuum of non-conversation. There's nothing more I can add. I could maybe I could lie and be like, no, but I always wanted to to drive a jeep. She gave me no avenues, man. You know, I'm not a stellar conversationalist, but even I know that's a faux pas. Yeah, it was just really weird. And like, she asked me where my interview was, and I named the company, but it's like a very small company. So she's just like, okay. Is that your Jeep outside? Yeah, it's just, you know, make an effort. Make an effort. I get my hair cut less than one time a year on average. 
And it's just like, I'm coming to you, and I'm trying to talk to you, and I'm getting nothing. It's like talking to a wall. And I know you can talk to people, because you just had a lovely conversation with the nearly bald man before me. Uh, I think, as a nearly bald man myself, I think that they have the most pleasurable conversations with the bald, because they pity them. I mean, that could be. That could be. And he was an older gentleman, so it could have just been, I don't know, more relation there. More, more to... To talk about, I think they were talking about insurance. Oh so man, that... barn burner! <laughs> it's like, yeah, I, I overheard like, oh yeah, we've got Geico or whatever. I'm just like, okay, so they're talking about insurance. Maybe I should have led with that. Maybe I too, I too have insurance. Is that your Jeep outside? No, but I bet it's got pretty good insurance on it. Is that what I should? I should have said, you know, I bet they save fifteen percent by. Call in five minutes on a Geico call or whatever, and then you would have. That's the secret in. It was a pass. It was. It was a pass. It was. It was a passphrase. You know, I was supposed to say, "Yes, that is my Jeep," or the Geico thing, and then we would be led into the magical world of having a nice conversation. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about any working professional is you have to know the one thing to say, and then they're obligated to like actually talk to you. I just, I just feel like you know, when jobs get automated by robots, maybe it won't be a bad thing. For I hope hairdressers. those, I hope those robots are good conversationalists. Well, no, no, I, I was saying that they would, it, you know, there would be no more expectation because it's a robot cutting your hair. Is that your jeep outside? Oh my god, no, John. Although that that brings me to another problem I have with haircuts, in that if there was a robot hairdresser, I would have to know exactly what I would I wanted. I never know what I want when I walk into a haircut place. Back whenever I get my haircut, and this worked sometimes, most of the time it was not a great strategy. I would just talk to the person. I'd be like, uh, "Cut my hair like someone you would want to date." About half the time, they thought it was like a weird, clumsy pickup line. It was not. Yeah, no, I think, I feel like that's the worst part of the haircut thing is like, so what do you want? Like, well, what are we doing with your hair today? And my dream is to sit down and just say, I bring forth to you a, a, a block of clay for you to mold however you want. But <laughs> they never, they, they will never do that because. You, you know how many like professional, professionals out there? Are they like, just show me in the book what you want? Yeah, so many of them. And, and, and like, I, so, usually when I get a haircut, I'm, I'm cutting off like inches of hair, you know. Last, last time I got a real haircut, I cut off about, uh, it was about 12 inches of mm. hair. And, uh, I go through the same thing every time where it's like, are you sure? Are you certain you want to cut that much hair? We can go in steps and, and like, you know, sh we can we can let you see what it looks like at each stage. And it's always, like, just a continuing hassle of, yes, please keep cutting. Yes, please keep cutting. And and so this was the first time I, I wasn't doing that. I was only getting, like, you know, half an inch to uh, clean up those split ends or whatever. And uh, it was the same thing. There, there's no magical amount of hair to be cut, I guess. I I would like to think that uh, were I like a sculptor, yeah. If people commission sculptures, I'd just be like, just point at what you want in the in the book. I'll just make you that. Yeah, because like hairdressers are artists. They they know things about hair that I can never hope to know. I mean, that's the thing. That that's the thing that I walk in knowing is that they know what works with hair and what doesn't work with hair. Why am I an amateur walking in and like expecting to be an expert on what I want? Because I have no idea. Like, it's especially uh, for glasses, I find that that's ridiculous, since I am someone who will very soon be a glasses-wearing boy. It's, I have no idea what looks good on my face. Do not ask me, hey, pick from this book and I'll just do it. Especially for hair, because if you're like, I want this one, and they do it, there's no take-backs. Yeah, yeah. And and that's where it's like, you know, if if you have enough money, you can get someone who will tell you, things about yourself like appearance wise so i think that's my problem is the the you know the 895 i paid isn't a, that's not enough money to, for the hairdresser 
to be like, well, this really makes your ears look fat or something. I don't know. I wonder if there's a business out there or if there is business in creating just an app that matches you up with like a stylist, not someone who will do anything for you. But someone you can have like off the cuff communications with about like your personal style will be like that looks good or that doesn't look good. You would think that all of the the people in Silicon Valley, you know, at least how they're portrayed in the media, they're apparently like nerdy and stuff. But like you would think they would, well, they don't care about looks. That's why. That that's why there's not an app for that. Shit. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you know. They don't. They don't care about their looks until they're Zuckerberg, you know. And then when you're Zuckerberg, you're like, all I wear is hoodies. Yeah, I mean, when you're Zuckerberg, you you have so much money that you're just like, as long as my hair looks nice, I guess I'm just gonna wear hoodies and also make a solar panel plane that's gonna circumnavigate the globe for some reason. But just like a flat subscription rate for a month, you have someone you can talk to whenever you want. As long as it's about, like, your personal style, and then they just, like, make choices for you. You don't have to take them, but it's someone who, like, clearly knows what's up. Yeah. Like a, like a personal style assistant, but for, like, the average, everyday person. And you only have to pay them, like, $4 a month. I mean, the price would probably be higher than that, just based on, like, monthly subscription services, like all those loot box things. Yeah, I think you'd keep it relatively small, and then, you know, uh, you know, one stylist could serve multiple people, so it would add up. You would have to get someone with, like, the best fashion designy eye thing ever. Well, I guess if it was only, like, $4 a month, you'd need to... Man, taking care of, like, a hundred people in a month with fashion tips would probably be a little difficult. Yeah, it sounds like a really tough job, like, just to be able to, to look at a person and know what to do with them. I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like you would need someone with some credentials. But hey, that might be the secret to it, though, is uh, the secret to being stylish, for the most part, is confidence. So if you have someone who can give you confidence by telling you unequivocally, this is the choice you should make, buy this one, not the other one, you are already making someone more stylish, even if the advice isn't particularly well considered because they know it's coming from an expert. That's interesting. So we just need somebody who can exude and and give confidence to people. Yeah, because if they know you're an expert, they're going to feel confident in your choice for the most part, and that's going to make them more fashionable. All right, well, let's let's go over to Silicon Valley and pitch the idea to, like, Google or something. I'll start apping. What does that mean? Making of an app. How do you... But you... Isn't it just Java these days? Isn't it Python? Isn't it just C++? C sharp. Isn't it just... Wait, that's a music note. Yeah, but that's also a programming language. Oh, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. C-sharp is like four pluses. It's like C++++, but organized as a sharp. It is, actually. That is what oh, it wow. is. Hey, look at me. I know a thing about the code. Hey, let's become computer programmers. I mean, I did take a class on Codecademy.com, so I think I know a thing or two about coding. Uh, how'd that go, by the way? Let's, I know on Zero Credit sometimes we get very into the idea of becoming computer programmers, so let's do that again. Okay. Uh, no, I, I took a few classes on HTML and I passed them, but whatever, you know, it's no big. But now you can make a website. I have no intention of doing that. You can become a real website. Why would I want to become, well... Why, why is, okay, I guess knowing HTML is good, but I feel like these days there's so many frameworks for websites that knowing HTML is just like another tool, a part of like Squarespace or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about programming is like you need to like learn tools, but what tools are useful? Yeah. You know, how useful is my Python and my processing and my Scratch? Probably not very useful. Who knows? I mean, I, these days it seems like everything is, uh, everything's written in alien space language, you know? You think there will come a time when we, potentially we, will we'll look back and we'll be like all these people who just didn't get on board with, like, 
computers and automation are like, man, I have been serially taken advantage of in my life because I didn't learn this key skill that was going to become tremendously important. I think the odds are like 50-50. Either it happens or it doesn't. But maybe we should invest in it. How do you invest in coding? Learn it. Oh, learn how to code. I, I don't know. I, I, You know, I feel like it's always going to be like the 1% of the top have no virtual skills whatsoever, and everybody else are just like the code grease monkeys. Code monkey. Yeah, but we've, we're covered in grease, though. Greasy coders. Because, like, instead of, like, a mechanic shop, it's going to be like a coding shop, you know? But it'll still be greasy, right? Yeah, because you gotta have that code grease to grease the uh, robot wheels of progress. Yeah, I mean you have to you have to lube up the compiler. Yeah, I mean, but yeah, otherwise your code gets stuck, and and then you know it comes back with errors, and you just gotta grease it all in, grease it all through. And then the code gets too hot, and it overheats, and it it bends and warps, and then that's how bugs happen. And next thing you know, you need a no, a, a new like. Code carburetor, a co- code berator, and you need a new, like, uh, debug muffler. Yeah, you need so many debug mufflers. I mean, how else are you gonna, you gonna bug stomp your code? Code. That's something that I, uh, think about fairly regularly is like, how can we keep things from, how can we keep the things that we do from being automated? Because my job is like, gonna be automated i'm gonna say within the month really wow that that's probably not accurate but like what i do a computer makes most of my decisions anyway okay so we gotta protect against that right we gotta beat beat the beat the pewters i mean here's how you beat the pewters you find a way to keep people alive and then you never let the baby boomers die oh wait how would that help well they're they are afraid of computers. Oh, that's why yeah. They, that's why they hire people, because why automate? Because I don't trust a robot. I'm going to hire a person and train them to do what what can easily be done by a computer, you know? So maybe to keep the terrifying automated future at bay, we just have to create a ruling hegemonic class of ever-living baby boomers. Which sounds like a futuristic nightmare of its own, like, making. Yeah, so maybe the robots aren't so bad. I feel like with all of the experimentation into a universal basic income, with so many jobs being animated, that's what's going to have to happen. Because, like, how can you have any amount of job security when technology outpaces everything? I mean, we're already at the point where a a computer is better at picking out stocks than trained stockbrokers. I mean, that's something that's been going through the stockbroker community for years and years is just quant firms, like quantitative reasoning, quantitative calculating firms. They're like, no, we have algorithms that pick the best stocks and we outperform every other human-based hedge fund and, like, private equity fund hands down. Yeah, and, like, you know, that's, like, basically gambling, you know, the stock market. It is very sophisticated gambling. So if we already got robots gambling for us, I really feel like there's no hope for any of the other jobs out there. And I mean, it's uh, also a real quick thought, like an aside on quant, when people are like, we still don't know if quant's the future. Very next news story. Quant hedge fund outperforms all competition by 512%. Really? So that seems like it's... Pretty obvious that they're the future. Oh, it's been obvious for decades, but for some reason people are still like, ah, but you can't. Computers don't have a gut. Computers don't have gut feelings. Computers can't take big beta wins. I mean, I think this past tax season featured Watson as an option for filing your taxes. Like, an AI will help you file your your taxes. So it's just like, there goes all tax people. Yeah, I mean, I I have a job where I make decisions uh, based on pretty simple risk variables based on totally quantifiable measures. A, a computer could do my job right now. They have computers that could outperform me easily. I mean, we're getting to the point where any talk about this raising the uh, minimum wage results in McDonald's starting to automate their stores and stuff like that. I just feel like 
we are two to three years away from a mass automation of most things. So maybe now I have to learn to code, because computers can't code themselves way deep learning, machine learning. Fuck. Yeah, they can. And that that's actually the, the... That's why a universal basic income will make sense in a couple of years, because it's just going to be... There's, no, there's not enough jobs, but there's a surplus of money. There is going to come a time at some point in the future when human beings, uh, the, the, like, the reason they exist, their day-to-day modality is not going to be based on labor or, like, striving for an income. I mean, we went through a similar thing back when agriculture was invented, you know, uh, back when we first stopped being nomads. Uh, not everyone had to be farmers. They could grow enough food for everybody, and that opened up people to create art, to create culture. So I feel like we're going to go through a very similar thing with this automation thing. We're going to free up so many people who were just plugging away at, at jobs that where they push a button for nine hours a day, and we're going to free these people, and like there's going to be a new cultural revolution, is my hope. And I mean, <laughs> we, we've gone through periods like this multiple times, like the Renaissance... Uh, so much of the of what was happening during Enlightenment was because people were freed up to think. You know, there there wasn't this this huge impetus on working so much as there was an impetus on creating. Yeah, and I, I feel like it's time to get away from the work culture mentality because all it does is depress people and keep people as wage slaves, which is great for the owners, but for ninety five percent of everyone else, it's terrible. And with your average person being more informed and powerful than they've been in, like, a few hundred years, now would there really hasn't been a better time for it. So down with capitalism, and then we just, we, we communize and, and make everything automated, all the robots are commies, and so then we can even get really weird propaganda films that are both anti-communist and anti-robot at the same time. It'll be great. Oh man, that sounds great. I mean, right? Man, can we live in that future now? I, I, yeah. Let's do. All you gotta do is be the change you want to see in the world. Yeah, I'm gonna start giving myself a universal basic income of zero dollars. Yeah, just wait for that government to give you a raise. Uh, you know, I think about that sometimes. Where there are countries that have, you know, uh, social welfare programs where, you know, if you have like mental issues that preclude you from working you are given like in excess of a living wage so you have this these micro communities of people who can't work traditionally but are artists because you know they have really bad like bipolar disorder or disassociative uh personality disorder and stuff like that okay so you have these people who are essentially free for the rest of their lives to create because they just haven't been deemed useful in a workforce. Yeah. And maybe a universal basic income would make everyone that way. I mean, that's the hope, you know. And a few countries are doing some uh, trial runs this year. I think Finland, for the entire year of 2017, is supplementing their, their economy with a universal basic income. I think Brazil has something related to disabilities and stuff like that. But there are a, the number of countries experimenting with this this concept is on the rise, and I I feel like the results can only just strengthen the position that a universal basic income is the way to go. I mean, there hasn't really been a a, a better time to be fascinated by. There have been better times. What am I saying? But there hasn't been a better time recently to be interested in what's happening with money in the world. There are countries that are, you know, abolishing physical currency. There's universal basic incomes happening. There's blockchain technology. It's an incredible time to be thinking about money because the the, the structures that we've been holding up for the past few centuries are quickly becoming obsolete. Yeah, I mean, Bitcoin. Yeah, all that blockchain. Yeah, c- cryptocurrency, you know, people have created currency in, in, a, in an age where, how are they creating currency? I mean, I guess a currency is anything you make, anything that has uh, some amount of liquidity and rarity. Yeah. Anything can be a currency if you want it to be, which, you know, in and of itself, that was one of the biggest 
uh, philosophical challenges when Bitcoin first came out is it made people challenge what does it mean for something to be money? And the answer people came up with was nothing. There's no, there's really no definition as to what makes something valuable as a currency. It just is. The only thing that makes, you know, like the US dollar have any value is an agreement between the government and the people that this is worth something. This piece of paper, this number in your ba bank account is worth this much purchasing power. It's the definition of like a fiat system, you know? Because, I mean, all the currencies we have are just agreements that these are tokens of scarcity. Yeah. And maybe it's time to make everybody rich. Or at least, yeah, make no, make everybody rich. Yeah, no, make everyone rich, including me. Me first. Yeah, me, me and John first. And then we'll, we'll, we'll get in there into the rich room. And then we'll, we'll fight for you guys, you know, totally. If you make me rich and send me into the room where all the other rich people are, the first words out of my mouth will be, it's a pleasure to meet you, Mr. Patrick Warburton. Second words out of my mouth will be, I think everyone else should be rich too. And, and the first words out of my mouth will be like, I really like your work and a series of unfortunate events. And, I, you know, is there any way, do you have any tips for somebody? Could, could I be like your apprentice? And the second words out of my mouth will be what he said. And yeah, and then you'd point, to, yeah, you'd point to me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I think that's really the only way to do it. And, you know, we just have to be the first ones to do it. Yeah, you know, just... Be, wait, has anyone ever asked to just be rich? You know, it's always better to ask forgiveness rather than permission. So, oh, so we sh Sorry. Uh, no, we should apologize for being rich which means we are rich if we just start acting rich then people will assume we're rich and just give us money i mean it's a documented strategy for certain people who at some point may be president to actually not have any money and be bankrupt but as long as you pretend you're rich people think that you're a good risk and they should give you money i mean there are people who crash like these those high society parties you know, to try to network, even though they don't actually fit into high society. So maybe that could be us. We could be, we could be a uh, uh, rich crashers. Oh man, I feel like we should make a movie about that. Yeah, and uh, you know, so, some down down the line in the re-edits and the, the the revision, we can change it to weddings. I think that works because weddings are like high society. Yeah, I mean, what says high society more than like a billion dollar wedding? I mean, what says high society more than someone wearing a pure white dress, which, as we all know, is the most expensive kind of fabric? Just white? Yeah. You know, that's actually where that came from. The white wedding dress was a was like a status symbol just because it was hard to keep things clean and, and make, like, pure white fabrics. That actually makes a lot of sense. So that's why everyone wants a white wedding dress, because only rich people have white wedding dresses, and everyone wants to be rich. What if I want a plaid wedding dress, but I, not for me, because I'm not going to wear the dress, because I'm not the, the bride? That's fair. It's plaid. Yeah, no, then you, you, uh, you adorn your betrothed in a plaid wedding dress, and you say, I'm sorry about the plaid wedding dress. I'm too rich. Exactly. I'm too rich to not afford all these colors, so I have to. And then people start giving you money, and it just works. It just works, just like uh, the, the you know Bethesda games. They just work. They just work. Right out the box all the time. Perfect. No bugs. It just works. No bugs for since. No bugs for sense. Uh, you know what else just works? What just works, John? Social media. Are you telling me it's time to wrap up this time-honored episode of everyone's favorite podcast, Zero Credits? We are, uh, as, as of right now, we have fulfilled our weekly obligation to our wardens in debtor's prison, and we can now wrap up this week's episode. I think you're forgetting something. We have to impart a final, lasting message that we learned during this episode. That is part of our parole. It, you are right. So uh, why don't you, you know what, I'll start. All right, you go, you go. You know, everybody, we have this drive to improve our lives and make ourselves happier, 
But the only thing we should really try to do is try to do something to fulfill us, not necessarily make us happier, and uh, keep a robot from doing it. Because robots can't be fulfilled, nor can they be happy. They are the enemy. And uh, I likewise learned that you should just give me a lot of money so that I can get into the rich room, and I'll vouch for you. I'll come back. Give me your money. Give me all of your money. And I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'm rich. Look at me. Yeah, and, you know, get past the bouncer. And then I'll be like, oh, you know, they're totally rich, too. And then you guys can come in. Okay, follow me on this. This Henry guy, pretending like people need to give him money, he's so rich he doesn't even need it, so you might as well give him money. Sorry. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Uh, you know, I don't even need your money, but, like, that that means you should just... That's all the more reason to give it to me, and, you know, I apologize. Yeah, I'm just sorry. We're so fabulously rich and if you want to catch some of these diamond cobras you can reach us on twitter oh yes on twitter.com at zcpcwhj that's right henry what's that stand for that stands for zero credits podcast without ham jalopies that's right zero credits podcast without ham jalopies and if you want to send us an email where can they send that email henry they can send that email over to zero credits as a podcast at gmail.com that's right send us all your money i mean emails and uh you know where else they can reach us on facebook they, all you gotta do is search zero credits podcast in the uh, facebook search bar and we're, like, uh, hopefully the first thing that comes up, if not, uh, we're on there somewhere. We will show up somewhere. And in addition, uh, since we are all millennials here, you can reach us on twitch.tv slash zero credits. That's right, that name was not taken. Somehow we will stream many things. And uh, what you can do if you're waiting for us to stream is you can go to zero, I mean, you can go to twitch.tv Slash zero credits. If you make an account, you can hit the follow button and you will automatically be notified by email of when we go live. And as a matter of fact, if you're an Amazon Prime member, once per month you have a Prime token to subscribe to a Twitch channel, which usually costs some money. Yeah, but we're probably not going to be partnered right away, so... Okay, so don't do that yet. Yeah. Hold on, hold them tokens. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I was just telling them that they can follow us now, and then they'll automatically be alerted to when we go live. Hey, you know, you don't want to be one of those people who later in life says, I wish I learned a skill that now everyone knows and keeps them in the workforce, and that skill is going to be watching us stream video games. That's a good skill to have. I hear that skill is going to be more valuable than Microsoft Office Suite. Yeah, it's going to sweep the office suite away, away. And uh, that's been us. Yeah, you just, you know, we're, we're done, you know. <laughs> we're Hi. done, and sorry. Yeah, sorry we're done. Sorry we're so rich and done. Yeah, it's better to give us money because we don't need it than to ask forgiveness for not giving us money. You catch more flies with money than with vinegar. Yeah. What he said. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>